We have already many times discussed the importance of not only Desi Lu, but Lucy herself in how important she is to the history of Star Trek amongst just television in and of itself. Her and her husband Desi, him, you know, creating the three camera system so that people in New York could see the same thing that people on the West Coast saw. uh, not to mention, um, they bought RKO. Did you know that at some point that they bought RKO? Yeah, I didn't know that either. That's crazy. Um, so there's a lot, of course, of of just uh, stuff that's important to television history that uh, is all due to uh, Desi, Lucy, and uh, their company, Desi Lu. So uh, with the fact that uh, Amazon Prime has put out this... Um, fascinating movie with Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem and then also with Amy Poehler put out a uh, documentary we thought maybe we'd just real quick hit on uh, some of the things that we learned while uh, watching uh, these two things Uh, but before we do that let's do the introductions like we always do this is the Brothers Trek About my name is Matt coming to you from Austin Uh, there's construction outside so please excuse any beeping you hear in the background and coming to you from Planet Houston is my brother Ken say hello Ken Greetings from Planet Houston. Houston. Uh, so uh, let's just uh, jump into uh, the movie itself to start with, and then I'll start feeding in interesting tidbits from the documentary as I watched it. Um, I'll start off by saying that uh, Nicole Kidman was pretty impressive as uh, Lucy. She really nailed her voice more than anything. I, But she even also, you know, looked the part i thought that she looked very much like uh lucy uh did back in the day yeah i thought it was it was really good i thought you know there were a few moments where i was aware i was watching actors portraying lucy and desi but for the most part i would say 95 percent of the time i felt like i was basically watching lucy and desi with you know a certain amount of uh, suspension disbelief. I mean, I wasn't trying to figure out, is this really Lucy? No, it's... <laughs> but, you know, uh, I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I think that... I, I definitely think that she was much more like Lucy than he was like uh, Desi. Uh, again, suspension of disbelief, like, after a while, it was no big deal. But uh, just initially, it was a little like... it was. Because it's Javier Bardem, you know what I mean? He looks very distinctive. He's a very distinctive looking person. And so, you know, he looks nothing like the very, like, good looking, sharp haired looking uh, Desi Arnaz, you know? So I think that that was kind of just early on one of the uh, interesting things for me. It's funny because with Nicole, I think that, like, there's a lot of times where she does, she puts in great performances. Um, you know, like I remember the first time I saw her in To Die For in the 90s. I think that was one of her first films um, that got like a uh, massive release. And she was, uh, she was, I remember her being fantastic in that movie. You know, uh, Moulin Rouge is a big thing in Jamie and I, Mai's uh, relationship. So that was another, that, that's another great thing that she's in. But there are also times where it's like, okay, that's just Nicole Kidman doing a thing. But all that aside, I think that she did uh, amazing in this movie. And Javier even does a good job of sounding like him. Yeah, I thought the voice was very good. Like yeah. And of course, you know, uh, Cuban is a is a different kind of accent. Uh-huh. And uh, I thought, you know, and, and part of that, you know, uh, I, I, I watched uh, various actors talk about their roles on on uh, is it the queen it's the uh the royal family you know the crown yeah the crown there you go and uh you know how they get into their voices and how you know there's a particular phrase and how they they you know look to get into their 
into their accents. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I thought he he pulled it off. Again, I, I wasn't like, you know, running, uh, you know, video of, of the real Desi. You know, it, it's easy to just say, like, there's a hilarious, uh, a hilarious example of like, awful, awful, uh, you know, accent. It is uh, a famous cowboy guy, also played G.I. Joe guys, was uh, John Wayne. John Wayne. He played uh, Genghis Khan. Uh-huh. And he made no effort <laughs> to not sound like John Wayne. <laughs> I'm sure that's amazing. All right, it you Mongols. <laughs> yeah. All right, you Mongols. Let's get out there and kick some booty. <laughs> so one thing that I will take um, as I deviate now and do a little bit of the documentary one thing that I felt like was actually kind of missing from the movie that is uh, definitely much more felt in the documentary is the actual love between them. Um, it's not something that I really felt. Like they showed it. They showed, oh, these two are definitely in love and and look at these kids, you know, trying to make it work. But I never actually like kind of felt, you know, in, in any kind of emotional way that these two were actually together. So when it comes to then the later in the breakup, and I don't know, maybe that was just me going, well, I know they're going to break up, so I, that's it. But it's interesting to actually listen to them on the documentary, because part of the documentary is that they found these tapes. Uh, Lucy Arnaz, her daughter, had you know these like tapes of them in interviews and talking uh, and even just doing it for you know like historical you know reference stuff uh, of them just talking. And you know, it's one of the things that you can actually feel when you hear the real people talking about their love together. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I really think that uh, they are the kind of couple who like they're, they're in love their whole lives. Mm-hmm. They get divorced, but I think uh, Desi is always Lucy's like soulmate or yep. however you want to say that special person. Um, she gets married, I guess, three times, mm-hmm. but uh well, she, uh, so it's interesting, it's in the documentary that they, and they, and they discussed that, is, is that, like, Desi is, like, legit on his deathbed, like, you know, day, it turns out to be hours, but, you know, he's, he, he doesn't have a lot, long time left, so Lucy, the daughter, uh, that's going to be weird, but anyway, uh, her daughter Lucy calls her up and is like, hey, I think, like, this is it, it's coming to, like, the very end, if there's anything you want to say, and, you know, like, basically her last words to Desi were, like, I love you. And his response was like, I love you too. So it's that that's definitely something that, that comes yeah. across there is that they really did, despite everything, have very much love for each other. Uh, so it's also interesting, um, and this is going to lead to a whole sidebar as well, but it's also interesting if you go and look at like a 22-year-old Lucy, um, she mm-hmm. is gorgeous. Like, you're just like, wow, I, I, that's not how I think of Lucy. I think of her yeah. you know, from the TV show. And by that point, she's like in her late 30s, right? Or early 40s. Yeah. So, um, you know, you just go back and look at her and you're like, okay, now I can see why she was, you know, <laughs> destined Starlet to become this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Made her way around. With that said, though, it's interesting because I remember looking through like mom and dad's old yearbooks, right? And just thinking that everybody in these pictures look already looked old. Yep. You know, even that they're like 16, 18 years old, they already look like they're like in their 20s or they're like, you know, older than that. I know part of it's hairdos and yeah, and, and, and the, way people wearing. Dress, the way people yes. wanted to look like adults. Yeah, that could whereas be. Whereas we want to look like kids. <laughs> That's possible. That's very possible. Yeah. You know, uh, so when I've shown Charlie videos of uh, of like the Beatles, right? Uh-huh. Early Beatles stuff. It's Ed Sullivan. You see the audience. And I point, look at these kids in the audience. These are teenage girls. And they look like adult women going to work. Yeah. Because their, their style, the hair, the makeup, the dress uh, is, I want to look like an adult. Exactly. Um, but so, what continues to be interesting, and where I'm going, kind of where I end up going with this idea, is that if you look at Lucy 
and Desi at the beginning of the five-year run, then look at them at the end of the five-year run, then look at them even a few years later while they're doing yeah. the comedy special. It's like that, you know, five, 10 years, they age a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, we can, we can, we always say that, you know, I, not always, we always say, but, you know, people always say that, you know, if you smoke, you know, the, the, between the smoke and the everything else, you start to look older that, and there was obviously a lot of that going on in the fifties. Yeah. And I'm sure though, a lot of it was too, just that the stress. I also think, so like they, they kind of hint at this in the movie mm -hmm. that um, when Lucy was, was still trying to be in movies, right. she was at the end of her like youthful uh, career. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. That she was she was basically trying to, you know, get in a few movies while she still had her her youth about her. Yeah. And so um, when, when they're like, nah, you know, there's there's no more movies for you. It was basically, you know, in part her age. Right. That she was just too old. And you figure, you know, once you get to that, that point and they say, uh, you know, you're basically too old to be a leading lady. It's not going to be that many years before you do start looking like someone's mom. That's fair. Uh, I love the uh, the background or background characters. I shouldn't say that, but I love the the, the supporting cast in this. Mm -hmm. um, Clark Gregg is great. J.K. Simmons, Tony Hale. Um, I didn't write her name down, but the woman who played Vivian Vance. I thought that they were. Oh, she all, was fantastic. Yeah, they were all super great. They were all super good. Um, An interesting story, you know, like one of the things that they talk about or that they point out in the movie is, um, you know, there's a little friction between Vivian Vance, you know, playing the every woman um, and, uh, uh, and Lucy. But it's funny because even after I Love Lucy ends and she goes on and does the, the Lucy show uh -huh. and then eventually hears Lucy, Vivian Vance follows her. Yeah, you know they continue working together for another yep. ten or fifteen years. So there's obviously yeah. not that much animosity going on between I, them. I, as I mentioned to you, I watched the roast. Uh, you know where they roast uh, Lucille Ball, uh -huh. and Vivian Vance was there. Oh wow! And you know, lots of people had little bits. You know, they they told one story. They had one little thing. Uh, I think you know, occasionally you'd have these guys who talked about how they had you know worked with Lucy in in the movies or had you know. Uh, and they had they had one little bit, but Vivian Vance had uh, had a longer, you know, bit about working mm -hmm. with with Lucy. Yeah. You know, it it also reminded me of the William Shatner. He's the star. Um, friction with his castmates. Yeah. Well, you know, as we get to that, I love the the scene of her like analyzing every joke to make sure it's good. The, uh, you know, the re-rehearsing of like, we've got to make this, this, this table, this table joke work. Yeah. You know, all of that was like really fascinating. However, it's funny because it's definitely about in the movie as well, but you know, even her daughter, Lucy talks about how she would use work and rehearsal as a way to avoid with dealing with whatever was happening at home. So yeah. that's interesting that that's another moment, you know, from real life that's brought in. Also, Vivian Vance and William Frawley were pretty contentious with each other, and it was actually Vivian Vance's fault because she, you know, was <clears throat> overheard by Frawley saying, like, no one would believe that I'm, you know, married to this old frumpy guy 22 years older than me. And so, obviously, he took <laughs> he took a lot of umbrage with that. And, uh, and uh, you know, that's where that their, their uh, tension comes, came from. So one of the things that you and I were talking about uh, when we were back home was was Lucy's fierceness. Mm -hmm. uh, talk a little bit about that, how that was in the movie. So, you know, she, she had a vision for for the product, that which is you know comedy, physical comedy a lot, and you know as you mentioned, you know she wanted it to be excellent. She is very much the producer of the show, thinking like a producer. Um, but she's also, of course, thinking about her reputation as a comic. And uh, I think she just worked very, very hard 
at making sure that the show is excellent. Yeah. Uh, you know, going over every joke, go, you know, making sure that it wasn't just, you know, acceptable, but that it was like the best on TV. And obviously it pays off, you know, she wins however many, she wins two Emmys for I love Lucy alone. And then, you know, one, one, another one for the next show. So there's obviously, a, uh, there's a password. Do you remember the, the, the show password? Yes. Um, and Betty White and Lucille Ball are a team. And then you've got two other stars who are a team playing Password, right? Okay. And there's a scene where, like, uh, Lucy is, is trying to give clues and ends up getting buzzed because she runs out of time without getting the right answer um, from her, the person she's um, uh, doing the Password with. Mm-hmm. And uh, Petty White says... Dick? Don't buzz a legend. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So one of the uh, Lucy historians that that's in the documentary talks about like where this fierceness of hers probably came from. And uh, one of the things she says is, uh, do you know how many times she was probably mansplained something on sets? You know, she'd been in, you know, however many movies and there were probably still people being like, okay, now the way this scene works is that the camera is going to move here. You know, and it's funny because later in the documentary, you see a scene where Lucy's like, well, I want the camera to move in here. But because of this, this light, you know, they, we, we would see the shadow of the camera. And then, uh, and so that's not going to work. And then, you know, one of the other directors is like, well, I can't, you know, it's like, uh, you know, he basically says, like, I can't do anything about the light. The light is where the light is, you know, without even, you know, and she's like, can we move the light? Like, you know, she's coming up with other ideas. And there's this guy who's just like stuck in his way of like, you know, we can't get that shot because of that light. Well, I'm sure there are other ways to get that shot. Let's, you know, figure it out. But he was he was just so like said and like, this is how we do it and blah, 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 you know. Where again, Lucy, who's been on, you know, in at that point had been in like 30 years of movies, is probably right. like, there's a way around this. Yeah, because at one time, you know, it was like, well, we can't make thunder. And then a guy figured out how to make thunder. Right. Aluminum foil or aluminum sheets. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, this is also this is also part of what leads to leads to the breakup eventually, is this because, you know, eventually Desi is Desi even admits in the in the doc, he says, you know, he was a big he was a go big or go home kind of guy. Right. Mm-hmm. He said when he worked, he worked too hard. And when he played, he played too hard. It was just I obviously, you know, we know he was had a, a drinking problem and blah, blah, blah. So that sounds very addicty to me. You know, you just like you just dive yourself into whatever it is when it's working. It's working. And there was one point where, you know, just before they bought RKO, he was like, we're either at the point where we either have to get bigger as Desi Lou. Or we got to call it quits because, you know, that's just you, he basically says, like, you can't half ass a business in America. It's just not the way it works. So he, you know, so they bought RKO. And then once he did that, then there there was like, you know, 40, you know, there's 40 sets uh, all uh, over the studio that they had to deal with. There were, you know, show after show being put on the air. And he was, you know, trying to keep it all afloat and blah, blah, blah. So obviously you know, this caused a lot of problems for him. And it's part of the reason where like what we see in the movie where he doesn't come home, right? He goes out on the boats and his blah, blah, blah. It's because, you know, whether he was fooling around or not, he just needed time to like debrief. And the problem was, is that, and again, her daughter mentions this, is, is that, you know, what Desi needed was not somebody to come home and, you know, have somebody who's like super fierce and talking about work and doing this and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, somebody who would like, Give him a little love, give him a little, you know, pat on the shoulder, a little like, it's going to be cool. Let's not talk about it. And that's just not the way she was wired. And so that really caused a lot of friction for them. Yeah. So you can see how they shared that, right? That they were Mm -hmm. both intense about the work. Yep. Um, And that, so sometimes people who are intense about the work also need to be like, they need help putting the work aside, not help doing work at home. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, so the scene that was in the movie of them meeting on the set of Too Many Girls was actually how it went down. Lucy was filming a fight scene in a, in, a, in a, another movie uh, that was running over, 
And, you know, so she comes on to set to meet Desi, but she's all like beaten, you know, looks like she's been beaten up, has a black eye and blah, blah, blah. And then she comes back later in the day, completely dressed to the nine with none of the makeup on. And he's like, oh, that's my ingenue for this movie. Got it. And uh, yeah, they go out on the date and literally within six months, they were married. So, you know, when I lived in Culver City, we lived just down the street from what had been RKO. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So while uh, this happens in the movie and obviously they talk about it in the doc too, but they go to, you know, CBS is like, Hey, we want to make uh, we want to make your, your radio show, a television show. And she's like, well, that's nice, but I don't really want to do it unless Desi can be the one I'm married to on the show. So we can have something that we can do together. And of course, CBS is like, and eh, we don't know how we feel about a white woman and a Cuban man married together on the show that could cause a lot of problems. So they were like, okay, I mean, we don't have to do the show. That's fine. So Desi ends up going on tour and puts Lucy in the show doing some sketches and whatnot. And needless to say, audiences were completely 100% behind, you know, Lucy right. and Desi as a couple. Yeah. So I mean, we've talked about this before, how TV as a medium is just, is just too conservative, you know, too unwilling to take risks, too unwilling to challenge the audience. And Lucy, on the other hand, which is, I think, a feature of Star Trek, willing to challenge the audience, trust that the audience will, will buy good product, whether that's a comedy show or whether that's uh, a situation or whether it's a science fiction wagon train to the stars, you know, type situation that's going to you know, have interesting concepts, interesting things going on. She trusts the audience. And I think it's proved right over and over again. And part of that's probably a combination of her good judgment and the audience uh, itself. She does this with uh, Desi being on the show. She does this with showing the pregnancy on the show. Yeah. And then, of course, Star Trek is full of these kinds of pushing the boundaries, test, you know, we think the audience can see whatever it is what we're doing here. Yeah. She says something in the doc, and I'm trying to remember what it was. She says something in the documentary about how, like, they wouldn't let her use the word pregnancy, mm -hmm. but that, like, expect expectant it's was okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so needless to say, they get divorced because of, uh, because of the business issues. And uh, his, her daughter goes on to say that they, uh, after the divorce, they actually got softer towards each other. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> liked yeah. each other more so that was a, an interesting thing they said what happened to desi is, is that uh, the business part overtook the creative part and he the creative part is the part he liked but he was too busy running the 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 business and the financials and everything else that he couldn't do the part that he really liked and so that was one of the other things that was really dragging him down i like lucy arnez also says this she said that uh when it came to then lucy taking over and running desi lu for a while you know, she like she didn't take it because she was like, I'm going to be the first woman to run a studio in Hollywood. She was like, but this is but this is what I got to do. I got to do yeah. otherwise I got to, you know, get rid of it. And so uh, she says uh, she didn't care about being the first of anything. She just was, which I thought was really great. Um, but then, of course, when Paramount comes around and says, uh, hey, we're thinking of buying you. She was kind of like, great. <laughs> it's all yours because <laughs> this is this has been really rough on uh, my family and me. So please take it. But she ran it for almost a good two years before she finally sold. Norman Lear also says this about uh, the marriage on the show between Desi and Lucy, saying that uh, what was great about it was that they didn't make a fuss about it at all. You right. know, there's no part where anybody ever makes a, a big deal about, you know, him being him being Cuban and her being, a, you know, she's like, it's just they were just a man and a wife. And they just happen to be different races. And of course, you know, then Norman Norman Lear goes on to make this a huge part of his television producing over the next, you know, next 30, 40 years. So that's funny with Good Times and with uh, the Archie Bunker show and the Jeffersons and all those shows. Although I think at that time, you know, when we were kind of at peak um, immigrant population, mm -hmm. which, you know, uh, we, World War One itself, but then immediately following World War One, uh, 
we had the Palmer raids. We had, uh, uh, you know, in, in Europe, it was much worse. You had uh, kind of all kinds of, uh, you know, left-wing action that resulted in, you know, uh, Soviet Bavarian Republic and uprisings in Berlin. Hungary was, you know, uh, briefly had a Soviet state. Well, you know, we, we had agitation and, like, bombings, 20-so mm-hmm. bombings over our course of a summer and strikes and all kinds of agitation, we, and we cut off. So before this period, before World War One, and then the subsequent lockdown and immigration, you have lots and lots of situations where, you know, immigrants of various uh, non-waspish, you know, uh, people were marrying people who were, if not wasps, then say wasp adjacent. Uh, you know, so, um, of course, we ourselves are merely wasp adjacent, right? So mm-hmm. German, Scandinavian, um, rather than Anglo-Saxon. But those kinds of uh, families, I think, if you think about who else would have been living in the apartment building that uh, Lucy and Ricky lived in, or the honeymooners, right? You would have had a lot of, uh, well, he's Italian, she's Irish, um, he's Puerto Rican, uh, you know, she's Italian, these kind of, uh, so out right now is uh, West Side Story. Right. Another one of these kind of crossing boundary situations. And I, th- I just think that was far more common then than the uh, the producers. And we, we should remember that the producers uh, or the, the network suits are going to be much more kind of elite culture than, you know, living in those apartment buildings and and seeing the mixing of all these different ethnicities and so forth. Uh, a couple other random notes I have, and another big reruns. That was another thing that they created. They um, did. Af- after uh, Lucy has the baby, which, by the way, I forgot this too, is that when Lucy has the baby on the show, the day that show aired was the actual day that little Desi was born. So that's crazy. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, because she needed time off after the uh, after the pregnancy, you know, which obviously her age, but also, you know, it was just a little taxing on her. She took some time off. And so part of what they did was just like, well, let's just put on old episodes. Well, and they had them because Desi had made the decision. I want I want to film it. I don't yep. want to just broadcast live. Mm-hmm. And this was part of the West Coast and the East Coast you know, issue. Yeah. But he had the idea, we're going to keep these films. You know, I, I don't know what they'll be good for, but they're valuable. Yep. And you could tell he was thinking this because the deal he made with the studio was, we own the films. Yeah. So you, you broadcast them, you make all the money on that, but when we're done, I own the films. And... Yeah, of course, the network's like, yeah, whatever. Who's <laughs> ever going to want to watch this again? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here we are, 50, 50, 60, almost 70 years later. And, yeah, uh, and still... we all know what Vita, uh, Vitamita Vegemite is. <laughs> That's right. I love that they mentioned that in the movie, too. Gets a nice uh-huh, little yeah. shout-out. Vitamita Vegemite. Um, I That, for me, is all the notes, but I'm sure there's plenty more that we could talk about when it comes to... Uh, Lucy and, and, and all the amazing work that they did. But if you don't have any more, then we can go on. <laughs> well, you know, I, I talked about it briefly uh, last time, or I guess two times ago. So I don't want to rehash too much. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I just felt there was a lot of stuff when I watched it that made me think of Star Trek. That it was not an accident that uh, it was Lucy who put Star Trek on the air and not somebody else. Yeah, again, just I mean, like you've already mentioned in this episode, you know, just the the idea of the of the race issue, like not even being a thing. And, um, you know, clearly, obviously, we do that a lot in Star Trek as well. Mm -hmm. All of our multiracial peeps. Well, just just thinking that, like, here's a here's a tough idea. Maybe it's just too cerebral. Maybe it's too um, too 
in the moment, right? Because it's about nuclear tensions or it's about, we're just going to trust the audience that they can watch this and they'll, they'll understand it and they'll get it and they'll appreciate it. And they won't be like, oh my God, he talked about nuclear war. Well, it's so funny too, because like I, lately I have found that that is like, it's become like my thing of dislike. I mean, not so much now, but like when we're during the pandemic and everything was like, and so like down and everything was awful. It was like, it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch anything that was too dark because it was just like, ugh, come on, I'm already dealing with this. I don't want to deal with more darkness in yeah. my life, you know? So it was a lot easier to like, oh, I'll watch a funny video on YouTube or I'll, you know, We'll watch a you know some sitcom or something as opposed to like hey let's dig into you know Breaking Bad again or something. <laughs> let's watch the zombie movies. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Walking Dead. Um, yeah, I think I think I spent like most of the of 2020 either watching Michael McIntyre or Sean Locke, two British comedians. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that's a good place to wrap up the discussion there on uh, old Lucille Ball. Amazing. Uh, you know, I don't know how much of you folks even listening know about her, but definitely look her up or at least check out that documentary or the movie. They're both uh, really great times and definitely worth watching. From here, what I want to do is just talk about some of the stuff, some more stuff leading into season three that uh, we want to cover before we actually jump into season three, because there's a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. And again, I'm only going to, you know, jump into about 10 or 15 minutes of this stuff, but it's uh, it's good information to have because again, if we're looking at where the art quotations comes from, if we're looking at where and how, you know, season three in it's good and it's badness happen, we kind of need to know all this stuff. With that said, one of the most important things that we have to talk about that happened between season two and season three is, of course, the letter writing campaign um, that brought Star Trek back for its third season. Now, we uh, previously spoken in earlier episodes, you know, they were on the chopping block for a while. Uh, they thought that, like, they weren't even going to get, like, the final five, six episodes uh, to be able to be done, but then they were brought back. And, uh, but unfortunately, rumors just kept circulating that like NBC was going to pull the plug on this thing. So the fans, of course, led by the Trumbulls, uh, wrote letters to NBC. Uh, they wrote letters to Trek sponsors. They wrote letters to, you know, the fan magazines. They wrote letters to affiliate stations around the country, just asking them to renew Star Trek for one more season. Uh, more than 100,000 of them hit, were sent to NBC directly. But once you add in the sponsors and the affiliate stations, it's estimated that over a million letters went out asking for the renewal of Star Trek, which is... You know, impressive. we talked, I, I, I think it was two two episodes ago, about the rural purge, mm -hmm. right? And how um, networks were looking for younger, more urban um, audiences rather than the older, you know, rural skew, skewing uh, audiences who... We're watching Green Acres or our regular nemesis, Gomer Pyle. Damn him. And it's a an irony of when the when the Nielsen switched to tracking that kind of data, because had the had the network known that they were reaching the coveted young male demographic, you know, eighteen to thirty five, which is so hard to advertise to, because they are not necessarily watching very much television um or like they just don't know how to get to them right it's yeah. a hard demographic to reach but well, this, this show is doing it yeah and here they are thinking ah oh, we're just not getting enough viewers let's just scrap this tv show without realizing or only realizing after the fact that oh wait a minute <laughs> it may have been a small viewership but it was the viewership we found impossible to reach well, and what makes it more difficult even is that, you know, they put the show on Friday night at 10 o'clock. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, and of course, we're going to see over the next, you know, the next year that they still manage to maintain viewership even in that crappy time slot. So you have to imagine what would have happened had Laughin not jumped in and taken over that, that, that 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock Eastern, 7 o'clock Central Mountain time slot on Monday nights, you know. It could have been huge and they would have had to go on for years. 
but you know, where would would people like Steve Martin be today? <laughs> true, totally true. Goldie Hawn. Uh huh. So of course, all this was unprecedented; it had never been done before, and uh, actually made NBC reconsider. You know, um, reconsider and say, "Hey, we're going to put the show back on the air." And it's even why they initially gave them that Monday night time slot was because they're like, "Well, I mean, if we're going to get this many people watching, then it's going to be great." Star Trek's fan mail had even at this point equaled and surpassed the monkeys' fan mail. So you have to imagine how crazy that was. Oh, absolutely. However, as we've discussed, once Laffin took over that slot, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry had promised, like, hey, I'll be showrunner if you can give us that seven o'clock, that eight o'clock time slot. And of course, losing Monday night was just the straw that broke the camel's back, and uh, Gene Roddenberry then left the show. But it also turns out, as we find out a little bit later, is that NBC uh, decided to use this as an excuse to get Gene Roddenberry off their backs. <laughs> they were sick of his tirades and his demands. And so they were like, hey, this might be the easiest way for us to not have to deal with this guy anymore. Of course, Gene Roddenberry is now kind of gutted, you know, and so he decides he's going to set out mm -hmm. and find a new showrunner. So he, he finds Fred Freiberg. He takes over the show. But he doesn't see the way of the show that other showrunners had. Uh, what we find in season three, according to Cushman, is that the commitment to scientific accuracy has disappeared. A lot of the humor disappears and a great deal of the feeling that we were traveling on a real starship on a mission to explore the galaxy also goes out the window. He says one of Freiberg's problems was that uh, he brought in a lot of experienced TV writers, but not a lot of science fiction writers. There's no Harlan Ellison, there's no Theodore Sturgeon, there's no uh, Bixby, Jerome Bixby. You know, uh, these were all just like independent TV writers. Mm -hmm. So the mandate was made by Gene Roddenberry to Fred Freiberg that no more comedy would be tolerated, the more, that uh, more formality between these military men in the future would also be added. There was also an equally strict mandate coming from the FCC that uh, NBC showed less violence in episodes. So therefore, the action adventure was taken out of the series even though the show is classified as an action adventure on top of all of this Leonard Nimoy was asking for an expanded role uh you know he wrote a lengthy letter to Gene Roddenberry explaining how in the last several episodes we were just cutting to Spock while he raised an eyebrow saying things like um sorry captain I can't give you that information right now uh you know, we even pointed that out and discussed it. So GR sends a, a, a memo to the staff saying, you know, Spock's role should go far beyond merely providing the captain with information on request. In our best scripts, he has volunteered information and, and had opinions. He pressured the captain, argued with him. And there's certainly no rule on Star Trek that Spock cannot occasionally be proven right and Kirk wrong. So that's something to look forward to as we go into season three. Uh, another another promise or two was made to uh, Walter Koenig. Uh, Gene Reinery promised him a bigger role. Part of it was due to the fact that uh, uh, executives thought that they needed to, again, get to that, that youthful attitude and perspectives. They wanted to use Chekhov to do that. Gene Roddenberry also says that he should be developed more, get involved with girls, and should be proud, but in a good way. Of course, as soon as Gene Roddenberry leaves, Koenig saw all of this going out the window. <laughs> another cast member, this is also sad, another cast member, Michelle Nichols, was out of her uh, contract, and she was offered the part of Mannix's secretary on the show Mannix, Peggy Fair. But Mannix was low in the ratings and was unproven in its first season. Gene Ronberry goes to Michelle and says, I mean, come on, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a communications officer, or do you want to just get M Mannix's coffee? So she decides to stay on the ship. However, of course, Mannix goes on for seven more seasons, and the actress who played Peggy Fair goes on to win an Emmy. And this always kind of stuck in Michelle's craw that Gene Roddenberry had convinced her to stay. Although, I mean, we, you know, I mean, which which role has really established itself in the long run? I mean, right, exactly. Yeah, in yeah, the yeah. near run, you know, Mannix may have been the winner there, but uh, I mean, who today remembers Mannix, let alone? <laughs> Right, Mannix, exactly. the secretary. Yep, it uh, it's people yeah. who were watching TV only, like in the early seventies. 
Yeah, I was going to say, until the movies came along, I'm sure that's exactly how she felt. Then once the movies happened, she's like, cool. <laughs> the movies well, start and, now. It's fine. And not just that. So, like, after the movies, you know, th- that role has been so yeah. well established and is so famous. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, lots of people have said, you know, it was an, an inspiring role. And that's yeah. that's all very true. Yeah, but, Whoopi Goldberg you know, and, uh, and uh, uh, wow, her name just went out of my head, but Discovery, her. Yeah, yeah. So this role is, is being, you know, introduced into the new show, uh, the, the one that's coming out in May. Yep. And Strange new they world. thought that was one of the characters that they wanted to, to include. Yeah. And so she's going to be an ensign, like, you know, just out of the academy, new. So, you know, there's supposed to be a scene where the, the captain, you know, invites you to, to the officer's mess, the, the captain's yep. dinner table. And, you know, it's like, so, you know, why did you want to be on the ship? And, uh, you know, she's going to have some depth and some complexity and they're going to build her backstory. And yep. it's a, it's, it's a, it's a only a good character, right. That you're trying to flesh out and develop that people think we want to see more of Lieutenant Uhura as opposed to, uh, Mannix, the secretary. <laughs> Yeah, where's that spin-off show? That's right. <laughs> uh, the last little bit I wanted to talk about before we leave is that there is also a mandate, and uh, both you and I will appreciate this. Uh, there's also another mandate that, uh, this time from NBC, that there would be no more parallel planet stories. Roddenberry and Coon together had brought so many during the second season, and a majority of them... Um, fell into the last several episodes produced, causing a re- risk of redundancy and therefore scheduling problems. So, I, you no know, more Parallel Planet episodes. I, at this point, I just have to say, have you been watching <laughs> Picard? I have not been watching Picard. So, of course, you know, it is a parallel. <laughs> is it really? Oh, that's funny. Well, it's that's like Parallel Universe stuff, though, right? Not like it is, yeah. But, and... You you watch it and there are they it's so good I really have to say uh, as as someone who will watch any Star Trek and you know fair um I, I'm aware that not all Star Trek is the best Star Trek but this is amazing it is so good and it was so familiar at the same time right. So you have these characters that we've seen that we're familiar with. That's part of the conceit of the show, right? Is that you've got Seven of Nine, you've got Picard. Um, Q. But, but yeah, they bring Q back. Um, but they also, um, you know, the stuff that we've talked about here, the whether it's the, uh, the mirror universe, and it's not mirror universe stuff, but the mirror universe is an example of the dystopian alternative to the Federation, right? right? But we've also, like, the Nazi episode or the Roman episode, these parallel world episodes where you go back and you see kind of an Earth where things don't work out so well, where things are authoritarian, tyrannical. And this this Picard is combining all of that stuff in a way that is, at one level, very well developed, very well thought out, you know, excellent writing, excellent, uh, you know, thinking through the consequences of an authoritarian version, right? Rather than just doing, well, we've got a few minutes to, you know, visit alternate, uh, whatever it is, alternate the Earth. Stage or, yeah. I mean, it's easier just to go like, hey, they're Nazis, as opposed to like, have to set up uh, another world on a right. 50 minute show. Yeah, so the mirror universe, like, has a few things that they do to establish, right? So officers fight their way to the top, right? Right. I, I'm going to stab the navigator so I can be the navigator. And the, the agonizers and, you know, this kind of stuff. They got just a few things to establish how brutal it is. Whereas in, in this show, they really get to, you know, spend more time with it. It's... uh. It's just showing how wrong they were to say no more parallel worlds. What's wrong with those people? Well, that's fair, I guess. Yeah, I can't wait to jump about Star Trek. I can't, I can't wait to jump into it. I uh, just, especially this last week, has been really crazy. But, uh, but definitely something that's on my to watch list very 
very soon. Very soon. Since I since I've mentioned it, there's one other thing that's interesting. You know, I've mentioned the Star Trek Online before. Yeah. And last year at the very end of Picard, they wanted you know Jay Franks to be leading the fleet. Right, Riker was going to have this whole fleet behind him. And okay. everyone was in the same kind of ship. I mean, it, you know, they did some little tweaking to make the ships look a little bit different. But they, it, was, it was all the same model of ship, right? Cutting and pasting. And the fans were not happy with that, right? Because Star Trek fleets are supposed to, you're supposed to see a variety of ships. And so this time, they, there was going to be a fleet in the first episode. And they're like, what do we do? How do we make a fleet? This is, uh, you know, we, we don't have the time or the... The ability to go out and make a bunch of ships. So they said, let's go to Star Trek Online. They've been making ships. Really? Yeah. Let, let's, so they picked four ships that had been in Star Trek Online to become canon ships to say, you know, you make them for a digital screen medium. You know, let's just put a little more work into them and make them a, put them on a TV show. Wow. And so when when the episode dropped... Then, of course, Star Trek Online is like, you know, doing promotions where you can buy these ships if you haven't gotten them already. Or, oh, my gosh. You know, doing little things on YouTube saying this is how we did it. This is how we made these ships. Or... Actually, that's so funny because I did see a uh, I did see a video that was like, what so you know what the big deal is about this about Picard's fleet? You know what I mean? Yeah. I was like, well, I don't know what this is. I guess I'll have to watch the show. But now you explained it. Yeah. That's funny. Well, and that course, is crazy. Uh, so, uh, you know, Star Trek Online takes place, like, in real time. So, in the sense that years have passed. So, uh, you know, J- Janeway is gray now, right? And uh, um, Tom Paris. All these other characters that, that get brought back to do voice work or, you know, to have their, their characters modernized. You know, time has passed, so they're they're all captains or admirals or what what have you. Yeah, that's fun. I've noticed that uh, uh, I've noticed things that are saying like post next generation. Uh, oh, there's a new game coming out. I was going to post it on our Facebook page, and I will uh, uh, I will when I release this. But uh, there's a new game coming out by the people who used to create for Telltale which is a, a video game company, and I, I've always liked their games. They're not super action-oriented games. There's not a lot of, like, you have to be a good shooter to play this game or any of that kind of thing. It's a lot of, like, dialogue options, and the story, like, cre- you know, is it it changes dep- depending on what you say and what you, you know, what you do and how you finish things. So there's a, a IGN just posted a, a, not even an opening, but the first, uh, like, First gameplay from it. It looks fascinating. It looks totally fascinating. And so uh, it's uh, it's old man Spock is coming to help you deal with a situation. And the guy who does the voice for Spock is uh, really good. Sounds like old man uh, Nimoy. Uh, um, <clears throat> and uh, and so you're playing the first officer on this on this ship. It's again post next generation. And uh, basically the idea is, is that Spock's like, you know, the captain and I in our official capacities can't really do anything to get involved in this thing. However, <laughs> if you went in in an unofficial capacity and could maybe talk to these people and find out what the situation is, maybe you could, you know, help us get some insight into what's really happening. Because obviously you feel in, in this whole opening scene, um, you know, they're in the ready room, um, that there's more going on than anybody knows so it's uh it's really fascinating and i'll post it to i at the point this is released i have already posted it onto the facebook page so go look for it on our facebook page and you can see it it's pretty amazing so the uh the current stuff on star trek online mm-hmm. they've got a uh a mere universe um you know big episode and so you've got uh tilly's mere universe character Killy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Captain Killy. Yep. Um, Lita, who was like a she's done things before for Star Trek Online playing her her mirror universe character. 
And then Janeway's Mirror Universe character is, is in it. So it's fun to have these three different characters from DS9, from Discovery, and, and Voyager all together on a mission with your uh, character who's um, also, you get to see his uh, and play through his Mirror Universe self. That's fun. It's fun that people come back and do the voice work for this stuff. Yeah, yeah, you've told me that before that they like that's really Janeway doing the voice, and yeah, I know Tuvok has been on there, and Tom Paris, Tom Paris, yeah, that was the other and, one. Uh, and Garrett Wang came back and did stuff. Nice, that's fun. All right. Well, uh, that's all I needed to talk about this week. Next week, we will be jumping into season three of the original series. It's um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it, I guess. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, <laughs> Spectre of the gun. Yes. Uh, so, you know, come back in two weeks for uh, Spectre of the gun. Should be a, a good time, a rousing intro into season three, whether we like it or not. And uh, and that will do it. Anyway, as always, my name is Matt coming to you from Planet Austin. Planet Austin. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Planet Austin. There, I said it. And uh, then uh, coming to us from Planet Houston is my brother Ken. Say goodbye, Ken. I'm a doctor, not a calendar. <laughs> right. And we will see you all in two weeks. Two weeks.